Great. Thank you, Dan, for reading. In John chapter 8, and don't worry, I do know that we've just read Romans 6, but in John chapter 8, Jesus famously annoyed his Jewish listeners by calling them uh, slaves to sin. They responded by saying, we've never been slaves of anybody. Why are you calling us slaves of sin? But of course they were wrong because the truth is that we are all slaves, slaves of something. Slaves of whatever it is that we give ourselves to, whatever it is that we present ourselves to, to use the language of the passage that we've just read. Just think about it with me for a moment. Uh, If you dream of playing professional football, most of us have given up on that dream, but some of you, that might still be alive. If you've given yourself to that dream, if you have, if you like, presented yourself to the dream of playing professional football, You cannot but help kick a ball at any given opportunity. You are ruled, in a sense, by a football. What about the person who thinks that popularity is what they need most, who has given themselves to others to please them? Well, that person becomes a slave to likes and comments on their social feed or to the agenda of others. They are not free, are they? They are a slave. Or or what about the person who believes that that comfort and ease are the goal of life? They have presented themselves to rest, given themselves to rest, if you like to use that language. Well, they will sit slavishly on a sofa in the grip of the next episode of the box set. You know, that for all the will in the world, they just cannot get up. They are chained to the sofa by all accounts, or at least it looks like that. Or just think about the sacrifices that people make for their careers, the sleepless nights that they're prepared to go through, the long hours that they're prepared to give, the missed years at home. You see, the point is that our choice is not so much whether to be slaves, but whose slave to be. Something will rule us. And it's that idea that Paul is picking up on in our passage this morning, but he's doing it at a much sort of grander scale than those examples that I've just given to you. So like Jesus to his Jewish crowd, Paul says to us all this morning, we are by nature slaves to sin, he says. Because, verse 16, like a football mad child to their footballing dream, we have presented ourselves to sin as obedient slaves. Sin here then is is not so much the wicked deed that we do or deeds that we do, but sin here is rather a, a wicked master who we give ourselves over to obey. The word that Paul uses here for presented is literally the word stand, as in to sort of stand with, to be on their team. I will stand with you. The NIV, if you've got an NIV version, translates it offer, which is more sort of sacrificial language, which is how the same word is used when it comes at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, with Paul telling us to offer or to present our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. It's the same idea as chapter 6 here. Uh, And the point is that by nature... In Adam, we have offered ourselves, we have stood with, we have presented ourselves as obedient slaves to a wicked master called sin. Now think about how that works. Paul's point at this sort of grand overarching level, a sort of who you and I are by nature level, is that in Adam, as he's been calling it, we have inherited a view of the world where life is not lived for God and his glory, but live for ourselves and our own glory. So that each of us outside of Christ, 
by nature, belong to a humanity that has dethroned God and swapped him out for something or someone else, most probably ourselves or something else that we can control. And because we've done that, so that everything we do, we do under the rule and reign of sin. We do it as sinners, as, as God-rejectors, slave to sin, submissive and willing slaves. Now, of all the stark things that Paul has said already in Romans, you might be thinking as you listen to that, goodness me, that's just a bit harsh, isn't it? Is what's being said here that outside of Christ it is not possible for anyone to perform a good action? Is that what's been said? Are doctors who perform life-saving operations on dying patients, are they not doing something good in that moment? Well, of course, saving a life is a good thing. And there are lots of good things like that in our world. But that's not Paul's point, is it? He's... He's digging deeper than that, digging deeper than the action itself and looking at the causes behind it, the motives behind it. You know, just imagine that scenario for a moment, the, the doctor performing a life-saving operation. Just think about them. Uh, perhaps they went into medicine because they, they wanted to show off actually that they were brighter than everybody else at school. Oh, I'm, I'm the smart one, they said. They, they cruised through their A-levels on competitiveness and pride. They, they mocked others and promoted themselves above everybody else. And they got to medical school and they chose to specialise in surgery because, to be honest, it seemed to pay the best money and the surgeons seemed to get treated the best in hospital. I want a bit of that royal treatment, they said. And what if then, even in the very action of performing the surgery, with great care and skill, their desire really is to impress the person who is stood next to them in the operating theatre, who they'd quite like to hook up with later. Well, then it's not difficult to see how a good thing has become a really ugly thing because it comes from a place of self-worship. And while the action might be good, the outcome for the patient good, still it's not hard to see that the action was done as a slave to sin. So it is for all of our actions possible, isn't it, to come to church, to serve those in need, so that others might admire us for our godliness. That is sin. Like a slavish greed or unkindness or pride. Yeah, Paul's point is that we are all, by nature, born into essentially like a, a spiritual North Korea, where it doesn't matter what you do or, or how you do it, the truth is you cannot leave because you are not free to leave. You're in a land ruled by sin. And all that we do is, is under that rule and done for that purpose. Listen, if, if, you're, if you're not a Christian this morning, I am so pleased that you're with us this morning. You're really very welcome. I, I really want to make sure that you don't mishear what I'm saying. The Bible here is not suggesting that you are incapable of doing anything worthwhile or beautiful or noble. It's not saying that. It's not the point. Well, the point is that all of us, by nature, are bound to do all that we do for the glory of ourselves. We're like willing slaves to something that will be the death of us in the end. As we work through the passage, you'll see that. And I want to suggest you see that in the little things that you do each day. You know, you, you snap a bar of chocolate to share it with a dear friend, and you weigh them in your hands and give them the smaller piece. You know, when someone praises you, says that you did that really well, you can't help but drop that into the next conversation that you're part of, because you want others to know about it. When you do something sacrificial or generous, 
You want to make sure that other people find out about that so that they know that you're that kind of person. It would take a real honesty for you and I this morning to see that about ourselves, but if you will be prepared to look, you will notice that that's what lies behind all that we do. We are slaves to sin, we're told. Now, in that context, I want you to see three things that God says to us from the passage. It's not everything the passage says. It's three things from the passage that I think are important for us this morning. The first one is this. We can be saved by the truth. If you take a look at verse 17, this is how Paul summarizes it. Uh, Let me read it to you. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, listen, to which you were committed. Now, I want us just to notice that first, that Paul says here that we have been committed to the truth, the standard of teaching, the doctrine, as he puts it. This is not that the truth has sort of been given to us, that we might steward the truth. We are not guardians of the truth here. Rather, the point is that the the truth, we have been committed to the truth, the standard of teaching. We have come into the care of the truth. Truth has taken us in. This this fits with how Paul has talked about the gospel all the way through his letter. Chapter 1, verse 18, I am not ashamed of uh, of the gospel because it's the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel, the proclaimed news of what Christ has done, is the power to save people. That's why in chapter 10 he says that people won't be saved if they don't hear. And they won't hear unless someone preaches. Because, chapter 6, verse 17, the standard of teaching, the doctrine, the gospel, the truth, the truth that he's been explaining, that is what saves. It brings liberty to slaves of sins to slaves to sin, as people are committed to it. So let me just go over that again, just so that we're super clear. This is the news that everybody in this room and everybody in our world needs to hear. Our God, the creator God, the one who has given us the breath that is in our body this morning, the maker of everything and everyone, has made in his world a promise to save a promise that he has kept in the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life on a cross, that whoever believes in him may not perish for their own sin, but might be set free from sin's power and its penalty as God lays our evil deeds on Christ and covers us with his righteousness. That is the standard of teaching that brings liberty, says Paul. Now again, Paul's point here is is to teach what the ongoing Christian life should look like. All of this comes in response to the question in verse 15, doesn't it? That the Christian life is not intended to be lawless. It's not, um, you know, do what you like because you're not saved by your works. Because in a way, the problem was never your works, the things that you did. Your problem was a heart that was enslaved to sin before you even did anything. And that can only be solved by hearing and responding to the sound of the gospel. Just, Just let's sort of cement this, if we can, together this morning. Have you thought about what's the difference between being owned by the truth and owning the truth for yourself? Sounds like a subtle difference, but I think it makes a big difference. If you're, imagine if you're stuck in a room, it's got no windows and it's got no doors. You're trapped. How are you going to get out of a room with no windows and no doors? One way 
would be for you to pick up a hammer and smash your way through the wall to get out. Okay? That might work. Or another way to get out of a room with no windows and no doors is for someone on the outside to smash their way through and bring you out. Now, in that first example, with you with a hammer smashing your way through, you have been given a tool to use to free yourself. But in the other example of someone coming through the wall to get you and take you out, they have owned you, if you like. They have brought you out and rescued you. And that's the difference here. We are not given the gospel to use as a tool to save ourselves, like a hammer to smash through the prison of sin. Rather, in the gospel, God smashes through the walls and takes hold of us and frees us from our sin so that we no longer belong to it but belong to him because he has rescued us. Now, that makes a massive difference, doesn't it? It means that the gospel does not start with you or I confessing our sins. Salvation is not me availing myself of this really useful thing that God has laid out, if only I'll pick it up. Rather, salvation starts with God by a move of his grace which is completely inexplicable outside of his love and mercy, smashing down the walls of sin to rescue us and bring us out. Coming to us in the person of the Son to take our sins upon himself to set us free. Rescuing me. Rescuing you. We'll think about that more in a moment. Secondly, we become obedient from the heart. Go back to verse 17. Let's just notice a couple of other words in that sentence. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become, what did he say? Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Notice that the the gospel here, the rescue, has made us obedient from the heart to the gospel. Now, there are two assumptions, aren't there, in that phrase. You'll have noticed it, I'm sure. One is that our experience of being owned or committed to the gospel changes our hearts. There's an internal transformation going on here, isn't there? Hold that thought. We'll think about that in a moment. The other is that being saved comes with a moral shape or a framework. The gospel is something for us to obey from the heart. Now, now put those things together. What you've got is an internal transformation and a moral obligation, and you've got them together at the same time. It's brilliant, isn't it? Because it means that that God in the gospel is not only just setting us free from sin, but also at the same time repurposing our lives that we might live them in a different way for a different purpose. Changing our hearts, changing us from the inside so that we want to live the life that the gospel calls us to. Think about it like this. It's not that the Christian life comes with a whole pile of laws that we should do. It's rather Christian life now comes with a whole set of new wants and desires, things that we want to do, so that God in the gospel is making us into people who want to love him, we want to obey him, we want to glorify him. So yeah, while we still struggle with sin, and we'll talk about that more in a few weeks' time as we look at chapter 7, we still do things, even good things for selfish reasons. Still, despite all of that, there is this glorious opportunity open in front of us that through God's transforming power in the gospel... It's possible for us, however falteringly, to obey God from the heart, genuinely. Now, just even saying that, like, I hope you find that prospect not only sort of vaguely attracting, but like wonderfully enticing. Imagine the, the meaning and the purpose and the joy and the glory 
that comes from you and I being invited to live our lives for the Lord, wholeheartedly. He says at the end of verse 19, he talks about this life leading to sanctification, literally holiness. In other words, this life, a life of heartfelt obedience to the moral shape of the gospel, if we can talk about it that way, that life is self-reinforcing. You know, the more you live like that, the more you want to live like that, and the more you want to live like that, the more you live like that, and then the more you want to live like that. It's like spiritual chocolate. You'll want more and more of it. Godly desires are self-reinforcing. Oh, it's a super radical way of thinking about the Christian life, that the standard of teaching the gospel, the truth, comes with a power to cause in us a desire to follow the pattern in our every area of lives. It changes everything, doesn't it? If you like, it's the very reverse of the doctor that we started with who is operating for selfish reasons. It means that our everyday actions can be invaded with the possibility of glorifying God with a, with a, heart shaped, uh, sorry, a heartfelt, gospel-shaped obedience. You can clean toilets, do the food shopping, look at spreadsheets even, in a heart of joyful obedience to the Lord. It means the gospel has a shape to follow, a shape of God moving towards sinners, rescuing them by his grace. It has a shape of death and resurrection, selfless sacrifice for future glory, a shape that should drive everything that we do. It means in turn that, that change in my life as a Christian comes not, not so much from tweaks in external behavior, does it? If I'm struggling with something, it's not so much that I I just have to amend my external behavior, but actually that the gospel gives me a way more powerful way to change because it it works inside of me to change what I want, what I desire to do. I'm changed as Christ in the gospel transforms my heart, what I want to do. There's loads more to say about that, but we just don't have the time, so let's keep moving. Let's finish with this idea that runs throughout the passage, this idea of offering yourself as a slave of righteousness. In verse 19, Paul sort of intriguingly says that he's speaking in human terms because of our natural limitations. I think this means that we shouldn't push his illustrations beyond the extent to which he's making them. And I think also probably means that we have to take chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Romans together. We need to make sure that they're all interpreting one another because they're addressing limited sections of Christian experience. Still, I think with those caveats in place, what he's saying is that there's a, there's a sort of a symmetry between our life now and our life before we became a Christian. So look partway through verse 19 and see how he puts it. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now in a symmetrical but not identical way, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now, members here means our our physical bodies. Us. And he's using that word in contrast to the way he uses the word flesh, which he uses to refer to our old sinful selves, the old self of chapter 6, verse 6, which was crucified with Christ. Now, in other words, without trying to make this more complicated than it needs to be, our, our bodies, the physical us, is not what dies with Christ when we become Christians. It's rather a spiritual union with Christ, whereby the flesh dies with Christ, the inner us, if you like, that desires to live for ourselves in wicked rebellion against God. That is killed with Christ on the cross. But it doesn't leave our bodies empty with nothing to do, like empty houses with no one living there. 
rather through the gospel, given that we've been broken out of the prison of sin's slavery, freed from the law of condemnation and and death, we are now by the Spirit to present or offer ourselves to God as slaves of righteousness. In other words, just like sin used to have mastery over our bodies, sin was driving what we did with the physical us, our members, so that our in our hearts, you know, sin sort of wriggles its way into every corner of our actions, so now we're to think of ourselves, give ourselves to righteousness and to godliness, allowing the gospel through our hearts to to wriggle its way into every single action that we take, so that every word, every action, everything we do has gospel shape and gospel smell, if you like. We're under new ownership. Possessed not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Slaves not to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Now, now maybe, we talked about this at Family Sunday School, and then I, like, I think the idea of being a slave is not a super attractive one, is it? The idea of being a, a slave to righteousness might not sound very appealing. But Paul goes through, spells out the difference, doesn't he? Just imagine the difference between being owned by sin and owned by righteousness, a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Those are the choices, aren't they? Either we are owned by sin, which verse 21 leads to a kind of shame and eventually death, verse 23, or we're owned by God leading to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That The destinies of the two slaves are uh, all the way through the passage. We're told to consider them in verse 21. You know, think think about what it was that slavery to sin was getting you. Where was it leading you to? Leads you to death. Lawlessness on lawlessness in verse 19. And slavery to righteousness is something to thank God for in verse 17. It leads to sanctification in verse 19 and again in verse 22. It leads to eternal life in verse 22 and 23. Now really, when you think about that, you know, that kind of slavery, slavery that leads to holiness and to life, it's not really slavery at all, is it? It's, it's been a slave to freedom. It's, it's a death to life. It's losing to gain. And that's what we're invited to, to present ourselves to God as willing slaves of righteousness. Let me just finish with two very brief applications. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must understand that you are not free. You are not free. This is important for us to understand that if we're a Christian this morning, even though we are not saved by our actions, still our actions really, really matter. If you're a Christian this morning and if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that gospel which has owned you and smashed you out of the prison of sin has come with a shape that you are now to live your life by. There are moral commands and demands that the Christian life makes of you. You If you're a Christian this morning, you are not free to decide your own sexual ethics. You're not free to decide whether or not you will obey your parents. You are not free to decide today whether or not you will tell the truth. You're not free to murder your neighbour or to covet their stuff or to steal it even. You're not free to spend your working life without resting. You're not free to call other things gods that aren't really gods. 
You're not free to pretend that God is different from who he really is. You're not free to think of God in a deliberately warped way because that's kind of easier to think of him like that. The gospel has not liberated you from obedience. It has liberated you from your sin for obedience. So that every action is infused with a new significance as an opportunity to obey God and live for him. So Christian, this morning, can I encourage you to live like that? To grab hold of your Bibles and to read them that you might know better what it looks like to live a gospel-shaped life in every area. Because that's the life that God has called you to, has made you inside desire to do, and is rightly expecting you to do. But secondly, if you're a Christian this morning, you are free. You are free. Not free to sin, but free from sin's rule and reign. If you're a Christian this morning, sin no longer commands you. It no longer binds your behavior or your will. You are liberated from sin's territory and its dreadful end. You have the freedom to live out of a whole new set of desires, a freedom to to live life as it was always meant to be lived, in relationship with the glorious creator, until the day when our members, which is a kind of weird way of saying it, isn't it? The day when our bodies, which are weak now, will be clothed in glorious immortality that we might live these gospel-shaped lives for all eternity to the praise and glory of King Jesus. And here's the thing. Free like that, we're just to keep presenting ourselves to God, saying to God, I belong to you, Lord. Use my life to please you. Bring glory to yourself as I follow your lead, as I seek to do what you call me to do. I lay myself down. Lord, use me. You know, at work tomorrow, you're there as a free slave of righteousness. Free, not to go with the flow at school or at work, but free to live for Christ and his glory. Listen, you are free to live your life not for comfort or for popularity or success or for money. You are free to live your life for the very purpose that it was given to you in the first place, as an instrument of righteousness in the hands of the living God. Let me pray for us as I close. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have smashed into the prison of sin and set us free. Free not to just wander off and live lives driven by our own desires anymore, but freed us to be slaves of righteousness, to be obedient from the heart, to love you, live the lives that you have always called us to live. What a brilliant opportunity you've laid before us, Heavenly Father. We pray that you might help us to grasp it with both hands, to enjoy and rejoice at the brilliant possibility of living to please you. Lord, we know that we are weak, that we fail, that though we are free, we still sometimes listen to the nagging voice of sin. Please have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.